to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, awakening, and more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with philosopher, author, and meditator Evan Thompson. Evan Thompson, PhD, works on the nature of the mind, the self, and human experience. His work combines cognitive science, philosophy of mind, phenomenology, and cross-cultural philosophy, especially in Asian traditions. His most recent book, Waking, Dreaming, Being, examines the self and consciousness through the lenses of neuroscience, meditation, and philosophy. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Lucid Dreaming, Meditation, and Consciousness. Okay, Evan, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you here. We've been through a little bit of difficulty now and again trying to get this interview to happen. So I'm so glad uh, we could finally make it occur here. I'm happy to be here too. And here for you right now, are you in Vancouver? I am. I'm in Vancouver. This is certainly one of my most favorite places on the earth. (laughs) So gorgeous. I've actually spent quite a bit of time also up at the northern end of Vancouver Island, which is Mm. just amazing doing orca watching and so Mm. on. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful place. We moved out here four years ago now from Toronto and I absolutely love it. I don't miss being in Toronto and I love being in British Columbia. I love Vancouver. We have a place out in the mountains in the interior of the province in the Slocan Valley area, the Nelson area. And it's beautiful out there too. So yeah, it's just wonderful. Isn't Nelson sort of the famous New Age center of Canada? It is. It's a very interesting place. You might remember the movie Roxanne from the mid-1980s. So it was shot there. And, you know, it's an old railroad mining town with different layers of immigrant populations. The Russian Dukabors in the early 20th century, you know, a sort of renegade Christian group from pacifists from Russia. And then it was a major destination for 1960s, you know, American draft dodgers. And it's a ski destination. It's a destination for another wave of back to the land people. The town itself is home to a lot of alternative arts festivals, community arts festivals and music festivals, big music festival called Shambhala. And so there's just a lot of, you know, mixtures of different kinds of people. And it's it's a really fun place. And a lot of spiritual communities, you know, some Buddhist centers, Hindu Vedanta ashram, a lot of yeah, you could say new age kind of spiritual stuff happening out there too. So fascinating. It sounds like a great place. Are you actually practicing when you're there or is it with a community or is it more of a summer home kind of thing? Well, it's a retreat place for me, but our son, who's now 26, lives there full time. He's a farmer and works locally in the valley. And so he maintains our place and, you know, puts in the garden and we have a bunch of apple trees and we're building up an orchard and we like to make cider. And so it's kind of a retreat place for farming and gardening for me and for writing especially as well. And I have my own personal practice that I maintain there and I'm connected to some of the local people. There's a there's a group in Nelson that I'm on the uh, advisory board of called the Kalen Hospice Center. And it is a place that does 
programming around contemplative and spiritual approaches to end-of-life care. And so I, I do some work, volunteer consulting work for them. So I am connected to, you know, local folks out there. But mainly for me, it's a kind of retreat place to have a quiet place to practice meditation, to practice my Tai Chi. And it's thanks to the very hard work of our son who lives there year round and keeps it running. Wow, that just sounds so nice. So, you know, the general focus of this podcast, as I say in the introduction, is mindfulness, meditation, and awakening. Mm -hmm. And it's that last word in particular, awakening, that we probably focus on the most with most guests. And if I was going to self-critique the podcast, I would say that we fetishize awakening as, <laughs> and reify it and turn it into an object and talk about it from every different direction and lots of different traditions and philosophies and so on. And you have a quite an interesting relationship with that idea or let's say group of ideas and your work. So let's just jump in right there. I mean, something that's so interesting about awakening is that it's a metaphor, right? And it, we can wake up from sleep every day. But when we're talking about awakening and spiritual practice, we're using sleep as a metaphor mm -hmm. and waking up from sleep as a metaphor. So can we just jump in right there? And I'll just ask you an impossible to answer question, which is for you, what is awakening and how do you define that if you do? Or, or how do you even think about that term? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So for me, it is a key metaphor. It's one that's very dear to my thinking and to my own personal experience. I use it as the central metaphor for my book called Waking Dreaming Being, which is about the self and consciousness looked at from the perspectives of meditation, philosophy, and neuroscience. That is an amazing book. So. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. It's very, very nice to hear that. So in the book, I, I talk a lot about dreaming and waking up in the dream, so lucid dreaming, the transition from being awake to entering into sleep, falling asleep, the hypnagogic state as it's called, also the transition from being asleep and emerging into wakefulness. I talk about different kinds of meditative experiences where one, you could say, wakes up to the presence of what the mind is doing. Um, that can happen in sitting meditation, that can happen in meditation practice in lucid dreaming. So it's just to say that the concept or the metaphor is central for my own thinking. And I don't actually define the idea. So I don't try to restrict it to a particular definition, but rather try to use it more evocatively to indicate something that happens in many different moments of our experience across the whole sleep-wake cycle. But one way that I like to think about it, which actually comes from the Advaita Vedanta philosopher Shankara in India, and you know, he says, well, of course, and he's building on very ancient Indian discussions here where he's actually commenting on the Upanishads, but he's, he's talking about there's the waking state and there's the state of dream and there's the state of deep sleep. And then he says that actually these states contain each other in a way. So, you know, dreaming in the waking state is when you're daydreaming and then you wake up and, you know, realize that you were daydreaming. And waking up in dreaming is when you have a dream and you know you're dreaming and you have a lucid dream. And waking up in deep sleep or dreamless sleep is when you have a kind of lucid 
dreamless sleep experience. So you're in the sleep state and you don't have dream images or thoughts, but you have a kind of, in the Vedanta terminology, witnessing or awareness of the sleep state. And then, of course, you can sort of become very mentally dull in the waking state. And that's a kind of form of sleep in the waking state. So what I like to do with this metaphor of waking is to use it almost fractally, where at different scales, you see the same structure of waking and sleep and of lucidity. So that's, you know, in a very general terms, how I think about it. Yeah, that's really, uh, as you say, evocative and rich. I like that because it it sort of opens outward to embrace a lot of really powerful and, and beautiful experiences. I'm curious what you make of this moment of awakening, whether it is waking up from sleep or waking up to the fact that you're dreaming or recognizing the fact that you're daydreaming. Is the essence of it that you suddenly have an, an external perspective on that experience? Like you're not so fused inside it anymore? Or what would you say is the core of even this broadest sense of awakening? What does it mean? Yeah, so I would say that I think in that transition into a sense of wakefulness, for me, something that's very salient is what you could call a feeling of insight or a, a sort of phenomenal sense of insight. So, for example, if we take lucid dreaming, you know, sometimes people, I've certainly had this experience, can all of a sudden become aware that they're dreaming by kind of reasoning their way into it. So, you know, something looks weird or out of place, and then you start thinking, well, maybe this is a dream, and then you sort of arrive by reasoning, oh, this is a dream. But another way that it can happen is all of a sudden you just have this kind of sense that's not really fully verbally, conceptually or thoughtfully articulated, but you just have a kind of phenomenal sense of insight. Oh, this is a dream. And that phenomenal sense of insight, you know, can also happen as a result of reasoning, where you reason your way into it. And then what's really important isn't just that you arrive at the conclusion of some reasoning process, but you all of a sudden have this kind of felt sense of insight. So that for me, I think, is one of the salient features of waking up. Now, the tricky thing about that is, of course, you can actually get it wrong. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, it's happened to me that I've had the sense that I've been asleep in a dream and then this very vivid sense that, oh, now I've woken up. And of course, it's what is called a false awakening where you feel like you've woken up, but you've actually kind of continued in the dream. So the tricky thing is, you know, that feeling of insight isn't by itself. It's not sort of self-validating. It's very powerful as a feeling, but of course you can make mistakes, you can get it wrong. So that speaks to me to there being the need for a kind of external check, as it were, that you can't simply certify the sense of wakefulness from within. Yes, and certainly currently there's a massive wave of people claiming to have awakening or they typically they're using the Buddhist term stream entry and self-validating that through the feeling of insight and also f through reading various websites or whatever that describe this and yet actually requiring some external check to see whether the insight is valid in any way or not. It's interesting with awakening as a metaphor coming from just the natural experience of waking up from sleep or waking up from a daydream because in that very natural embodied sense of just the simplicity of waking up in the morning, we don't see it as a permanent condition. It's just a 
process that happens. And it doesn't mean that you never need to wake up again, right? right. You're going right. to wake up tomorrow and, and anytime you fall asleep, presumably for the rest of the time you're alive, you're going to wake up from that sleep. So do you think that that metaphor breaks down at that point or does that actually transfer over to the way awakening is used in the spiritual sense? Do we need to continue to awaken continuously as a process that we go through or is there some kind of insight that becomes part of where we're awake from? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, certainly, you know, if we take awakening as, say, in a Buddhist context, something like, you know, liberation from suffering or the, you know, removal of all mental afflictions, nirvana, in other words, I mean, that by definition is a kind of waking up that you don't backslide from, <laughs> you know, that you don't fall asleep again from. So that's, if you will, if we're going to use the metaphor, that's a total awakening, a complete awakening. And of course, you know, different traditions within Buddhism, to say nothing of other contemplative traditions, understand what that is in, in different ways. And there, I think it is important to remember that it is a metaphor and that that concept meant that way isn't the kind of awakening that then proceeds to lead back into sleep. However, at the same time, we also know, especially if we're thinking about things in a Buddhist context, that it's of the nature of things to constantly change. So that kind of awakening is perfectly compatible with being awake in the ordinary sense, falling asleep, maybe dreaming, maybe not, waking up. So we don't want to, I think, fix on the metaphor in a way that would reify it in such a way that it would disconnect it from simply what it is to be a human being and to live in the way that human beings live. So I think, you know, your question kind of points to some of the complexities around how we talk about notions like awakening and enlightenment, which is an English rendering of the Sanskrit bodhi. So bodhi really has the sense of awakening, but of course in English we also have this word enlightenment. And there I think... Um, you know, there's no one answer to that question because different traditions, different practice communities, you know, they say different things about that. And they may promote, for that matter, different attitudes and practices towards what they think that is. Yeah. So what do you think that is? <laughs> I don't know what that is. And I would say that I'm skeptical. Let me put it a different way. I think awakening is a, you could say it's a metaphor or a concept. It's not a state. That is to say, different traditions of practice and the languages and the discourses that they use, use this concept or word in different ways. And I don't think necessarily that they're all pointing towards one and the same state, that we could somehow identify independently of the practice community, of the language. Certainly, I don't think we could identify it independently in the form of neuroscience. I mean, that's another thing we could talk about at some point. Yeah. So for me, I would say that, you know, the minute we start talking about that, the proof is kind of in how people live their lives. And a lot of people will invoke concepts like awakening or liberation and do all sorts of things that I think are very harmful and unethical. So that, to me, 
immediately invalidates the sense in which they're using the concept. Or what they're using the concept to refer to isn't something that I think, you know, I particularly would value. So I'm thinking especially of, you know, I grew up as a kid in the 1970s. I saw, you know, all the guru scandals that, you know, have rocked the world of Hindu and Buddhist teachers in, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, still actually today, of course. To, to this day, still yeah, ongoing. To this day, ongoing, right. And so, you know, to me, that basically says that there are rhetorics people use that have certain terms and words, and they deploy them in ways that harm other people. And so that's not something that then I, you know, would want to support or value. So all of this is a way of saying, I don't think there's one thing there. I think it really depends on, you know, who's using it, what they're talking about, and how they're actually embodying it in their relationship to other people. Yeah. And so you bring up two interesting points when you say embodying it with their relationship to other people. And those are the intersubjectivity mm -hmm. of it and also the embodied quality, both of which I believe are your really home-based topics. Yeah. So again, like about the metaphor of awakening is that it comes from an embodied experience. Presumably, if there's such a thing as a disembodied consciousness, it would never need to sleep, right? So even the whole idea that we wake up as monkeys with computers, we go to sleep, we wake up, we have to do that because our physical bodies need rest points to something really interesting, I think, about the embodied nature of consciousness and awakening. What would you have to say about this embodied nature of waking up? Yeah, I think that's a great connection. I think the point that, you know, if consciousness were disembodied, it wouldn't, you know, go through being awake and being asleep, except perhaps in some, you know, very extended metaphorical sense, you know, that would require a lot of work to specify. Um, yes. I th I, you know, I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, we're embodied creatures and much or most, you could say, of what we are is not transparent to us in our waking state. It's got to do with, you know, complex biological activity that has to do with the regulation of the whole living body, the whole organism. And fundamental to that is a sleep-wake cycle. And of course, this isn't, you know, just human. This is across all mammals. So I think when we use this metaphor of waking up, we're tapping into something that's very basic to our embodied being. And that in our case, and I don't think this would be restricted to just the human case, but in our case has this very strong phenomenological quality of, you know, that feeling of having just been asleep and waking up with the sense, the knowledge you could even say of having just been asleep, the feeling that there's a kind of depth to our, you know, bodily organic being that is carrying us through sleep, but that's just not transparent to the sort of waking cognitive mind. And that I think is really pointing to the depths of the kinds of beings that we are as embodied living animals. The way I understand it, you locate consciousness in the body, but also not restrict it to the body. 
I was reading an article just yesterday about spiders who outsource some of their cognitive processing to their mm-hmm. web. Mm-hmm. You know, the web is considered part of their memory structure or their, you know, sensory apparatus. And some of their thinking takes place in the web. And is that what you mean when you're talking about uh, extended consciousness or are you headed more in the panpsychism direction? Yeah, so there's a lot of different issues sort of bundled up together there for me. I don't really use the expression extended consciousness because it spatializes consciousness in a way that I think can be a bit misleading. I mean, I don't think my consciousness is in my iPhone, for example. I think, you know, I rely on my iPhone a lot for various kinds of things that I do or my computer or, you know, tools that I use or, you know, paths that I walk. So these are all support structures. And some of those support structures can, you know, if they're very intimately coupled to me, can form a kind of larger system involving, you could say, feedback and self-correcting or self-organizing activity so that there's a kind of loopiness through the environment beyond the body. I wouldn't want to say that, you know, my consciousness is in the path or in the iPhone because it immediately makes us think of consciousness as a kind of, you know, thing that has an obvious spatial location. So if we were to say, well, we can't really get a good view of consciousness unless we see it as a pattern of relations that involves you know, my brain, my body, and the environment, you know, that way of talking, I'm a little bit more comfortable with. Now, the mm-hmm. the question about panpsychism is more a question about, should we think that consciousness or mind is a fundamental ingredient of the cosmos? So that, you know, contrary to the sort of materialist or physicalist idea that you only get mind or consciousness when you put together a physical system of sufficient complexity, rather the panpsychist idea is that, well, no, in some sense, mind is there wherever you look, however far out you go, however far down you go. And, you know, I would say at our present state of understanding as a philosophical theory, I find that as coherent or logically compelling as the physicalist or materialistic view in terms of science, if we want to talk about it that way, I don't think we're able to decisively rule that out. But it's not how I sort of naturally approach the question because I prefer to approach the question more through specific, you could say, practices that tap into our experience of consciousness and trying to deepen our sense of consciousness, you know, from within phenomenologically. And that you can do that without necessarily, you know, going the panpsychist route with it. Another way to put it is you could say the panpsychist way of thinking is a kind of speculative, you know, philosophical or metaphysical theory. And, you know, as a philosophical theory, it it has a certain coherence and logical cogency to it that is comparable to a physicalist theory of consciousness. But the way that I prefer to work is more phenomenologically with, you know, the fine-grained details of consciousness through our experience and then relating that to the fine-grained details of what we know about uh, the brain and and the human body and its relationship to the living and social environment. Yeah, this becomes very interesting in meditation practice in particular because I often find that there's a kind of a blurring 
of the distinction or even a total conflation of whether the entire endeavor is about looking at physical facts in the exterior world or physical facts in the interior world, so to speak. We could say third-person kind of facts in the interior world, or whether it is a 100% first-person inspection of the phenomenology of experience itself. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, strongly lean in the latter direction, like we're exploring our experience of consciousness or our experience of the world or our experience of the senses. And it's always interesting and cool if that maps on to some neurocorrelate or if that maps on to something we can measure. But those are, in a way, really different practices. Yeah. I mean, the way that I think of it is that meditation isn't a science. So, you know, some people like to say, well, meditation is a first-person science. A variety of different kinds of people, you know, say this. You know, you can hear Buddhist teachers say this. Like you, I have a large Hindu background, and they're always saying that as well. Right, right. So Buddhist teachers, Hindu teachers, you know, you'll often see statements like, you know, yeah, meditation is a first-person science. So I don't like that way of talking. I don't think meditation is a science, and I I think the very idea of a first-person science is almost nonsensical because science is a social collective enterprise based on, you know, public data with controls and tests. And meditation is... It's all about the third person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say, I mean, science is intersubjective. So it depends on there being a community of observers who can share their experiences and check them against intersubjectively measurable things. So for me, you know, public means intersubjective, whereas meditation, I think of meditation as a way of exploring the mind and the body analogous to the way dance or martial arts explore the body and the mind. That is to say, they're skillful practices that admit of expertise and proficiency, and the checks and tests are ones that have to do with the expert and experienced practitioners who check your level of accomplishment against their understanding and that a lot of it is really a kind of collective practice in a community where you have more experienced people and teachers, you know, regulating the practice. And you can learn all sorts of things from that. I mean, there are all sorts of insights and transformative things that can happen through that. But that's rather like the way in certain forms of dance or artistic practice or martial arts, you, through practicing with other people and through experienced teachers, learn new things about yourself and your experience and and other people. And that's very rich and it's profound and it's, I think, a beautiful thing that's central to human life. But it's distorting to say that it's a science. Science is a particular kind of activity and meditation is a different kind of activity, just as, you know, art is a particular kind of activity and science is a particular kind of activity. They can talk to each other, they can inform each other, they can enrich each other, but I don't think meditation is sort of an inner science. And the other thing I would say about this is I think the danger of talking about meditation as an inner science is that you actually instrumentalize your relationship to yourself. So, for example, a number of meditation teachers use analogies like Well, when you learn to practice Vipassana or when you learn to practice mindfulness, what you're doing is you're sharpening your introspection, which is like a kind of inner telescope or inner microscope where you take this, you know, mental faculty of awareness and you train it on your own mind and you see things more clearly. And if you talk like that, then you're taking something which is your mind, which is 
that which is really ultimately not objectifiable, and you're turning it into a kind of instrument and thinking of your relationship to your mind in an instrumental way, in a kind of means and in instrumental way. And I, and I think that that actually uh, distorts the mind and distorts subjectivity. So all of this is to say I agree that meditation isn't science. I, at the same time, don't want to say, you know, it's a subjective looking within because, again, I think of it as more like artistic practices or martial arts. It's a practice that's in the doing, in the performance, and that involves other people and more experienced practitioners who coach you and who, you know, who guide you along the way. Wow, there's about 10 interesting directions there. Um, <laughs> but as I understand it, your sort of fundamental framework for approaching this whole discussion comes from the Upanishads, is that correct? Well, in my book, Waking, Dreaming, Being, it's the structure. Yeah, it's the, the basic structure is the structure of the waking state, the dreaming state, and the state of dreamless sleep. And then what in the Upanishads, some of the later Upanishads is called pure awareness, which I use as a kind of placeholder for different kinds of, you could say, contemplative forms of awakening. So that's the basic structure in that book. I sometimes use that structure in talking about these things more generally and sometimes don't, but certainly in the book, that's the basic structure, yeah. And can you unpack that for us a little bit? How can we use that structure to understand what we're doing in meditation a little more completely? Yeah. So in the context of meditation, I would say that you can think of it as, you know, we start, of course, in the waking state. We place our body in a certain position. We have certain kinds of instructions we're trying to follow depending on our practice tradition if we're doing, you know, Zen or Vipassana or a form of yoga meditation. So we have what, you know, psychologists would call kind of a task set. We sort of set ourselves a particular framework for this, you know, particular meditation session. And of course, that all requires you could say, the cognitive control of the waking mind. But then, of course, immediately, as we all know, the mind has a spontaneous life of its own. And so our minds wander or we get drowsy and we literally fall asleep. You know, we daydream. You know, a, a lot of times when I go to a meditation retreat, the first two days, I'm almost in a hypnagogic state all the time because I'm just <laughs> resetting my metabolic baseline. You know, my waking life is so, you know, I'm running from one thing to the next, teaching or writing or lecturing or, you know, being with my family. And so when you go to a meditation retreat and you just kind of sit for the first, or at least in my own case, sit for the first two days, the whole like sleep-wake cycle has to reset itself. And so often when I'm sitting there, I'm sort of literally in a kind of, hypnagogic state where I know in some sense that I'm aware and awake, but there are these dreamlike things passing before my mind, and sometimes I can watch them mindfully, and sometimes I get sort of sucked into them. So that's a kind of dream state in the meditation state. And then there are moments of, you could say, lucidity or feelings of insight where one really notices or is very finely attuned to, say, the rhythm of the breath and how that is immediately keyed to particular kinds of body feelings or emotional affects or thoughts, a sense that the mind is about to, as it were, launch into something that would be a distraction. But because one notices that movement tendency in the noticing of it, it, you know, it dissipates of its own. So these are all qualities sort of micro experiences, you could say, that involve for me subtle qualities of waking and what psychologists would call meta-awareness, awareness of awareness, and the spontaneous 
way that the mind, you know, generates thoughts and images, which of course is what it, you know, really goes to town with when we dream. So that's how I see it in meditation practice. Now, something like dreamless sleep, I think, is a really interesting case. Yes. In Indian philosophy and Indian contemplative literature, dreamless sleep is treated as itself a subtle state of consciousness or awareness. It's not, you know, a, a blackout state. So, you know, in neuroscience today, you'll often find scientists saying, well, consciousness is that which, you know, we have when we're awake and when we dream, and it's that which disappears in dreamless sleep. So from the Indian, some Indian philosophical perspectives, that is a very crude statement because there's a kind of subtle awareness that persists in dreamless sleep. And it's an awareness that isn't structured in terms of subject and object, in terms of it's not an awareness of thoughts or images. It's, you could say, a sheer feeling of being aware. And that can happen in meditation too, I think, where there's just a sense of, you know, awareness as such with very minimal sense of even embodiment, though, of course, clearly there is in some sense a bodily feeling in the form of the feeling of being alive. So I'm not talking about other kinds of meditation states where even that might drop away, states that are sometimes called cessations in the Buddhist literature. So that also is in dreamless sleep you know, that feeling of just the feeling of being alive, that then you, you know, carry the taste of that with you when you wake up in the morning or wake up in the night from a deep sleep. That can happen in meditation too. So I use the structure in that way as a kind of large scale map that admits of finer discriminations and differentiations to get at some of the different kinds of, you could say cognitive states and phenomenological qualities during meditation practice, sitting meditation practice. Now, in your book, you do spend a good amount of time discussing lucid dreaming, and I'm curious what you feel lucid dreaming can contribute to our meditation practice, if anything. I think that really depends on the attitude that one, you know, brings to lucid dreaming. So, you know, lucid dreaming can be treated as just another, you know, playground of the mind, and there I don't think that there's any, you know, way that it is particularly interesting in relationship to meditation. I think you, if you... Yeah, you know, so often the way lucid dreaming is described is sort of like a kind of extended control mm. of the mind by the ego or by, you know, the normal personality right. to kind of fulfill its desires and cravings. Exactly, yeah, and exactly. to me, that always seems sort of like missing the point. I think so. I mean, you know, if people want to do that with lucid dreaming, that's, you know, fine. I don't like to be doctrinaire dogmatic, but I don't think it's particularly interesting or deep. I think what is interesting or deep is that it provides a very powerful occasion for cultivating a certain kind of mindfulness, you could say. So one thing I would want to say just right off the bat before launching into that a bit more is to say that a lot of people, when they use the term lucid dreaming, they think that what really that's about is controlling the dream. And I don't think that that's the right way to think about lucid dreaming because lucid dreaming in, this, in the way that I use the term strictly means being able to attend to the dream as a dream or being able to attend to the dreamlike quality of the state. And that's really very different from trying to control the dream in, in terms of trying to determine you know, the narrative of the dream. In fact, I think from a meditation 
point of view, if you will, a mindfulness meditation point of view, trying to control the dream is really in a way beside the point. What you want to do is to cultivate an awareness of the dream as a dream and an awareness such that whatever arises in the dream, you can cultivate certain mental qualities in relationship to it. So if it's a negative dream, you know, cultivating positive qualities of, you know, compassion or loving kindness or equanimity. Dreams are places where emotions are incredibly intense. So the special opportunity, you could say, that lucid dreaming affords for meditation practice is to deal with very intense emotions and to deal with the way that things are really not in control in the way that they are in, you know, or appear to be at any rate in the waking state. Even in a very powerful lucid dream, one really doesn't have the kind of control that one has in the waking state, kind of cognitive control, I mean, where you can really, you know, sequence thoughts and control what you're doing. It's very rare for that to happen, even in a powerful lucid dream. So what that means is that you're cultivating a kind of equanimity and balance and, you know, loving, compassionate mental qualities in the face of whatever it is that, you know, the mind is stirring up. And that's the other thing I would say that's important to remember with lucid dreaming is that, the mind is creating things on the basis of its own, you know, inner memory traces and images. This, this is actually something that's very deep in Indian thinking as well, is that in, in the dream, what you're actually really kind of constructing the mental content out of are memory traces, latent impressions that have to do with, you know, a record of one's experience in life. And so the way that the mind, you know, puts that together is something that is out of control, out of ego control, and being able to witness that and watch that is the special opportunity that lucid dreaming provides from a meditation perspective. Particularly that last point, I think also leads us to notice the experience of the construction of the waking state also, mm-hmm. right? If we can notice that in the dream state, which appears to be so compelling and salient and real, that that is actually a dream. It can point to or help us notice the similar way in which in the waking state we are experiencing a mental construction rather than the actual world, right? Yeah, I think, you know, the link for me would be that whatever is happening whether one's awake or dreaming, there's always a way that it's being mentally framed or mentally configured. And that's very apparent in dreaming. But of course, that also happens in the waking state. It's not to say that the waking state is a dream in exactly the same way that the dream state is a dream. I wouldn't want to say that. But it is being mentally configured and mentally framed on the side of you know the person or the subject and that's not dictated by the outside world that's something that you know you bring to whatever it is that you're encountering we talked about the structure of waking and dreaming and dreamless sleep and turiya or pure awareness that we have in those ancient indian scriptures but there was actually another formulation that i was pointing to which is the formulation of consciousness and then the content of consciousness mm. and then the ways of identifying with contents yeah yeah and the ways that we form an right. ego out of the contents right. so could you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, so that's a, a threefold structure that 
we see across really all the Indian, let's call them contemplative philosophical systems. So there's a distinction made between the contents of awareness or the contents of consciousness, which, you know, change with the passing thoughts and feelings and with falling asleep and with dreams and waking up. And then there is awareness as distinct from its contents and different traditions you know, disagree on exactly how to mark that distinction. But there is a distinction we can draw, at least, you know, conceptually between awareness as such, where that means an awareness of the presence of something versus a particular change in content of awareness, and then ways that we construct our sense of self through identifying with certain contents of our awareness and disidentifying with others. So in the waking state, the way that that happens is we have an immediate body-grounded identification with the sense of the body from within in interoception and proprioception, and the body as the source point of perception, the locus of movement and agency. So our sense of self in the waking state is fundamentally a body-grounded sense of self, where our identification has to do with our immediate experience of the body in awareness. And when we daydream or mind wander, of course, we still have that sense of bodily presence, but our awareness is much more bound up with identifying with mental images of the self that we project into the past or into the future. So, you know, psychologists call this mental time travel, where you, as it were, project yourself back into some recollection of your past, which is, of course, constructed in the present moment, and similarly, you know, forecast or project yourself into an imagined future, which is also constructed in the present moment. So there, the identification with contents of awareness is very much an identification with mental representations of the self as an enduring entity through time that is the ground of your personal history, the mentally represented ground of your personal history. In the dream state, dreams take different forms, but we often have a sense of embodiment in the dream. So we recreate in the dream that sense of body versus world. But of course, the body in the dream is a mentally you know, imagined or mentally simulated, you might say, feeling of the body that, of course, is tied to your feeling of your body as you're lying there in the bed, but that is a mentally enacted sense of embodiment in the dream. And then in the lucid dream, of course, you become aware of that. And so you can have a more complex sense of self-awareness where if it's a very vivid and intense lucid dream, you know, you know you're asleep in the bed. At the same time, you know you're flying in your dream. And so there's the dream ego and the embodiment of that which is mentally imagined. And then there's the dreamer, the dreaming person or the dreaming self asleep in the bed. In deep sleep or dreamless sleep, at least according to, you know, traditional Vedanta and yoga descriptions, that mentally imagined or mentally represented sense of self is absent. And there's a feeling of sheer awareness. So any identification that's happening is really one that has to do simply with a sense of the presence of awareness. And, you know, from a cognitive science or neuroscience perspective, we might say also that that might very much be grounded in the deep regulation of the living body in the deep phases of the sleep cycle so that the feeling of awareness is kind of a feeling of sentience or a feeling of being alive, but it's not a an awareness that takes the form of thinking I am asleep or, you know, I have a dream or something like that. So all of these things, the awareness, the contents of awareness and the ways that we identify with them, that structure shifts across 
the sleep-wake dreaming cycle. And that's really what the book Waking Dreaming Being explores, is it explores how that three-braided or threefold structure runs through these states, but shifts in its emphases and character through the different states. What do we know currently, if anything, about how this dream ego is constructed? And when I say, what do we know, I'm now starting to point towards neuroscience. Well, we know that the cognitive systems and the brain networks that support them, that are activated or active in lucid dreaming, are very much the same ones that are active in autobiographical memory and in imagination. If you take memory, for example, and I ask you, how did you feel at the party the other day? Because I asked you how you felt, the chances are you will relive the memory from within, from a first-person perspective. But if I ask you, what were you wearing? You will probably in the memory image, if you have a memory image, sort of see yourself from outside, from an elevated sort of bird's eye point of view and say, oh, I was wearing that you know, striped shirt. So that difference between a first-person or field perspective and an outside observer perspective, that's central in memory. Of course, we can also enact it voluntarily in imagination, and it also shows up in dreams. So there's you know, the dream where you live it from within, and then there's the dream where you see yourself from outside in the dream. So these phenomenological similarities speak also to the cognitive systems being the same at work in dreaming and in memory and in imagination and the neural networks that we know associated with things like perspective taking and generating mental imagery, those are very much mobilized in dreams. And individuals who have lesions to particular parts of those systems will report an absence of dreaming and also will report you know, difficulties in perspective taking in waking life. One way to summarize all of that is to say that dreaming is in a way a kind of imagination, or you could say dreaming really is sui generis, it's unique, but it's linked to imagination and to memory. And would you say that it's fair to say that from a neuroscience perspective that the waking ego is also linked in some ways to imagination and memory? Oh, definitely. There's different aspects of the waking sense of self, but one facet of the waking sense of self is the sense of, you know, being a person with a narrative, with a history, recalling things from one's past, anticipating the future. That narrative sense of self is very much the work of imaginative memory, because we know that memory is always a consolidation and recreation in the present. It's not sort of a direct inspection of the past or pulling a faithful scanned image of the past out of some you know, data store in your brain. It's always a creative reconstruction of the present. So it requires imagination. Something that has been really interesting to me, and, and correct me if I'm mistaken here, but you know, previously when science would talk about the sleeping brain, it seemed like they were always saying that basically it was kind of powered down for the most part, (laughs) you know, and that maybe your brainstem is obviously functioning, but they seem to think that a lot of the rest of the brain was basically turned off. And recently, the idea is actually it's almost as active as a waking state. There's still a lot going on. It's just very different kind of activity. Is that a correct characterization? Yeah, I would say it is as active as in the waking state. It's just that the activity is different. So, you know, the brain never powers down except, you know, in death. 
and even there, you know, it takes a while to power down and things decay at different rates. But no, I mean, sleeping is a very active brain state where, in fact, in the brain, there's always this balance between activities that are local to particular populations of neurons or particular areas or regions, and then activities that are more network patterns that are, you know, long range or large scale. And we know that in, for example, deep sleep, that certain large scale patterns of activity are not there in the way that they are in the waking state or in dreams, but there can be very intense local activity, uh, in some ways more intense than in waking states. So it's just to say that the brain is always active and it's always a question of how it's active. And the way that it's active in sleep is different from the way that it's active when it's awake. Yeah. And so it really changes the metaphor where previously I certainly thought of sleep as like, okay, the brain needs a rest. Your muscle needs a rest. So you stop using your muscle in the very same way your brain needs a rest. So you stop using it when right. you're asleep. But given that it's just as active, although active in a very different way when we're asleep as awake, what is science beginning to conjecture as to the purpose of this sleep function? Well, we know that sleep is really crucial for certain forms of learning and memory. So the ability to, as it were, sift through all of the things that have been registered or assimilated by the brain and weed out the ones that, you know, really need to be maintained and the ones that need to be discarded, that really happens when we're asleep. And we know that sleep is also crucial for temperature regulation and for a whole bunch of, you could say, metabolic self-regulation functions. So, of course, we feel that, you know, we're awake and we're tired and we need to go to sleep. And so sleep is a rest. But you know, some things you could say are at rest because we're not forming the same kinds of, you know, neural network patterns of activity in sleep that we are in waking. But other things are really dancing around, consolidating things that we need to learn, discarding things that really aren't of use to us. So it's, it's really quite an amazing thing, actually, that the brain is doing when we're sleeping. It's such an interesting new perspective. I, yeah. I really love it. Like the idea that, yeah, you're not just sitting there with the power turned off. Something is really going on and it's an important thing. This reminds me, though, something I heard you talking about, this kind of new focus in the West of meditation as being something that only happens in the brain. Consciousness right. is something that only happens in the brain and we're only looking at brain scans and brain activity. And of course, there's something to be learned by looking at these neural correlates. But I'd like you to talk a little bit about consciousness and meditation as something that might take place in the entire person or the entire body. Right. So the analogy that I like to use for this is between, let's say, meditation practice, and, and particularly I'm thinking of the kinds of meditation practices that, you know, people use the word mindfulness to indicate. So ones that cultivate certain forms of attention and meta-awareness. The analogy I like to use is between those types of practices and parenting. So nobody would say parenting is in the brain, right? You need a brain to be a parent, to be a good parent. Parenting is a skill. It requires, you know, empathy and being able to take a perspective and being able to regulate your own emotions. And it takes a, you know, a certain amount of knowledge. 
And all of that requires a brain, but it isn't something that goes on inside the brain. It's a fact of our biology that fundamentally implicates our, you know, social relations. And it's culturally variable. Practicing parents, you know, have differed across history and differ across different societies and cultures. So I want to say an analogous thing about mindfulness meditation. It's a skill. It depends on systems in the brain, systems that are crucial for attention, for regulating your emotions, for meta-awareness. But it isn't happening inside the brain. It's something that is enacted by the whole person in a social context of other practitioners, of teachers, of norms of practice and guidelines according to uh, a tradition or a practice community. And so it's, it's fundamentally a skill enacted in a social context. So of course, you know, you need a brain for that. And certain things may get selectively mobilized or light up, as it were, in the brain when you're shifting your attention or noticing that your mind is distracted. But just looking at those don't really inform us fundamentally about what meditation is as a skill and as a practice that depends on the person in the social setting. And the reason I've emphasized this, you know, lately in some of my talks and some of my writings is that because our culture has got fancy brain imaging technologies and is fascinated with the brain, people have thought that by looking at the brain, that's the best way to do the science of meditation. And looking at the brain, of course, is an important thing to do, but just doing that doesn't give you a cognitive science perspective on meditation. To have a cognitive science perspective on meditation, you really need to get at the phenomenon at the level at which it resides and look at it from these you know, social, cognitive, I would also say anthropological, historical perspective. So I've been kind of singing this song lately I guess you could say to correct what I have seen as an imbalance in the way that the scientific study of meditation has proceeded. How is meditation embodied? I mean, uh, we could think about the same question with motherhood, like, yep. or a parenting, as you said. To me, it's clearly something that we are experiencing as embodied beings, but you've gone so far in this direction. I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think in a way, the fundamental feature of meditation practice is the embodied setting in which it occurs. I mean, the first thing you learn as a beginning person coming new to meditation is how to put your body into a certain position and to maintain that position as a way of cultivating certain qualities of mind. I mean, there's a reason that we sit in a way that tries to make us stable with, you know, the spine straight and the head, you know, lifted, but, you know, not tight or stiff. And this is a basic fundamental thing to all practice traditions. That's not just beginning, but it's an advanced thing that, you know, you constantly come back to. And it's an interesting feature of the science of meditation that a lot of it is done with people lying in scanners. And of course, you know, meditation has a portable dimension to it, right? You can take the mental qualities into different bodily positions and into different social settings. But when you remove the embodiment from your field of view when you're studying it scientifically, you're actually missing something, you know, very fundamental to the practice. So there's the embodiment in that very basic sense, but there's also the embodiment that is social embodiment. You know, many people learn meditation in a community of practitioners, or even if they're learning it, you know, over the internet, that's a different kind of social context, a different kind of connectivity. And 
it's it's distorting in a way to factor those things out not for certain pragmatic reasons where we need to factor certain things out to investigate something about the brain that's perfectly fine but factoring them out in a way that makes you think you're getting at the inner essence of meditation. That's what I think really goes against the idea of embodiment. Because you have this idea there's an inner essence, and it's inside the individual head, and it's inside the individual brain. And, you know, that's fundamentally what meditation is. And that's a very modern, Western, you know, individualistic way of thinking about meditation that would be very strange and foreign, you know, to other communities and cultures of practice throughout history. What leaps to mind is some kind of even metaphoric understanding of purification mm-hmm. of the nadis or some kundalini view or even a Taoist view of meditation where a flow of experience through the body itself is so fundamental to yeah. the process. And very much connected with, uh, with nature and the environment. Yeah. Yeah, and whether we think of that as metaphorical or real, in either sense, we're still refocusing on the body and the environment and other people and all of that, rather than just kind of the meat in our heads. Right. Yeah, another analogy that I like to use is flying. You know, a bird needs wings to fly, but the flight isn't inside the wings, right? The flight is something the whole bird does in its environment, and, you know, the wings make flight possible, but they do it by generating lift, which then, you know, launches the bird into flying as an activity of the whole bird. So, you know, you need the brain, of course, to bring the mental capacities that are enacted in meditation, you know, into play. But it's the whole person in a social setting, in an embodied context, that is the phenomenon of meditation, not what's going on inside the brain, just as flight isn't what's going on inside the wings. I mean, I'm ultra fascinated with neuroscience and at the same time sensitive to the fact that if we assume that we can reduce all meditative experience or all insight or all of any experience really into some definition of neurocorrelates, that's a reduction with a loss of a lot of important things. Yeah, I think very much so. I mean, to be fair, you know, the neuroscientists who work on meditation, of course, you know, don't have that as their aim, that that's not how they would describe what they're doing. But because, you know, we have these fancy neuroimaging technologies, and we're able to generate these very colorful, you know, pictures, which aren't really pictures, they're sort of statistical representations of what's going on in the brain, we sort of fasten on to them as these objects of attraction. And that does, you know, lead unwittingly into a kind of reductionist way of thinking that isn't, you know, a useful form of reduction as a scientific technique for certain purposes. It's a reductionism in a sense of a flattening worldview that just misses the actual phenomenon and its richness that is what we're interested in in the first place. That's exactly the thing I'm pointing to. And I see something similar happening along with that in Buddhism and to some extent yogic and Hindu traditions where there's this urge to use some of this scientific validation to, in essence, validate the entire religion or say that, see, we were right all along. This science proves the religion. And of course, thoughtfully, no one is going to do that in a deep sense. But I hear that kind of talk or see it in articles quite often. Oh, yeah. I think that's quite prevalent. I think there's a way in which a lot of the research is framed by a 
I mean, to be blunt about it, framed by a, you know, prove the truth of meditation or prove the truth of Buddhism or prove the truth of, of yoga. And that's just not good science. You know, science is a different kind of activity. And when you do science that way, I mean, the thing that's kind of funny about that is that if it were prove the, you know, use neuroscience to prove the truth of Christian prayer or prove neuroscience to prove the truth of Freudian psychoanalysis, people would immediately, you know, be up in arms and would say, well, that's biased, that's normative research. But that happens a lot less with Buddhism and yoga because they are treated in this, you know, kind of exceptional way. And that, I think, is really uh, a kind of fetishism on our part. We fetishize these Asian traditions that are actually reconstructed, kind of modernized versions of the Asian traditions, which is fine. You know, these traditions are innovative and can historically reconstruct themselves, but we fetishize them in a form that's already particularly tailored to our sensibilities. And then we think that somehow, you know, this is different from other forms of, you know, religion or, you know, investigating the mind or therapeutic practices or whatever that may be. And this is something I'm writing about in a new book that I'm working on. And I think it's actually quite widespread. And I think it's damaging because it's not a genuine scientific way of proceeding. And let's say it misrepresents both science and it misrepresents Buddhism and it misrepresents religion. I've heard many quite brilliant people say with a straight face that Buddhism isn't a religion right. or it's the only religion that actually helps anybody and all yeah. sorts of stuff like that. I mean, without directly trying to criticize anybody, is that part of what the, the yeah. book is? Yeah, so the for? first chapter of the book is called The Myth of Buddhist Exceptionalism. And Buddhist exceptionalism is exactly that idea that Buddhism isn't a religion, it's really a therapy, or it's really a mind science. And, I mean, this is just simply incorrect. Buddhism, under any scholarly definition of the term, is a religion. Religion doesn't require belief in God. That's one kind of religion. Religion is about textual traditions and rituals and practices that enable us to make sense of human existence and events like birth and death and trauma and altered states of consciousness. And Buddhism is certainly a religion under that definition. And even so-called secular Buddhism is actually a religion in that sense, because it has ritual, it has practice, it has textual traditions, it has interpretations of the meaning of life, and it makes value judgments, it's normative, it's based on what scholars of religion call soteriology, the idea of some kind of liberation or salvation. Even if you're a modern Buddhist and you don't believe in rebirth or karma and you recast liberation as some kind of awakened, to go back to our metaphor, awakened state in this life, that's still a normative soteriological notion. And, you know, it's religious. So, you know, when people say Buddhism isn't a religion, they have as their the model in their mind of what religion is, you know, Protestant Christianity, which is a historically recent and outlying case of what religion is as a human phenomenon. So this is what I call Buddhist exceptionalism. And the problem with Buddhist exceptionalism is it distorts Buddhism and it distorts religion because it treats religion on the model of one particular religion, Protestant Christianity, and it distorts the phenomenon of religion, which is about a kind of collective meaning making that gives us, you know, 
narratives and rituals and practices for how to understand our place in the world. So this is something that I'm definitely criticizing in the book. Yeah, it's a really important point. There's a couple important points there about science and religion and Buddhism and meditation. I'm so happy to hear that you're writing this book. But as you say, it's critical. And I think for lots of people could come off as like very negative. And so I'm curious, from your perspective, what's the good news about? Right. So the book has got two parts. It's got a critical part and it's got a positive part. And the critical part is this, you know, critique of Buddhist exceptionalism that I was just mentioning and how it has shaped the science of meditation and the science religion dialogue, if we want to put it that way. So part of the good news is just, you know, well, we can actually do better in the cognitive science of contemplative practices and in our understanding of what religion is as a human phenomenon if we, you know, remove this kind of misrepresentation. But that's not the only good news. The good news, I would say, is that when we take a different perspective from Buddhist exceptionalism, we can really appreciate, you know, the profound importance of the Buddhist tradition, because I'm speaking mainly about Buddhism in this book, we can really appreciate the profound importance of the Buddhist tradition as a, a tradition of philosophical wisdom and contemplative practice in the larger human community, in dialogue with science and in dialogue with other religions. So the, the philosophical term for this that a number of philosophers have used that goes back really to ancient Greek thinking is cosmopolitanism. And cosmopolitanism is the idea that there's one human community that we're all members of, and that it's important that there be different traditions and different forms of practice in this one human community, and that we are all, this was the Greek expression, you know, we're all citizens of the world. So cosmopolitanism came about with the idea that, you know, don't say that you're a citizen of Athens or a citizen of Sparta. Say that you're a citizen of the world. You belong to the human community. And you can respect other, you know, traditions, other forms of practice, while still being concerned for the welfare of the human community as a whole. So rather than and engaging in a kind of you know, exceptionalism, where we treat Buddhism as somehow, you know, not a religion, you know, recognize that it's a religion and recognize its, you know, very important contribution to the human community as a whole. So in a nutshell, the positive part of the book is really an argument for a kind of cosmopolitan perspective rather than a Buddhist exceptionalist perspective. Now, I've worked in publishing for a long time, so I realize this might be a dangerous question, but does this book in process have a title? It does have a title, and uh, the title is Why I Am Not a Buddhist. Excellent. Good title. And I'll just say a little bit about the title. I mean, the title came about, and, and this is in a way how the book came to be written, actually, is that because I work with Buddhist philosophy, and I'm a meditation practitioner, and, you know, I've worked a lot in the Buddhism cognitive science dialogue, you know, when I give lectures, or I go to retreats, or I go to, you know, Mind and Life Institute meetings, you know, people just automatically assume that I'm a Buddhist. And so I explain, well, no, you know, I'm, I think of myself as first and foremost a philosopher, and I'm interested in this project of building bridges between different traditions. And, you know, Buddhism is very important for me in that, but I'm not a Buddhist. And so, you know, that sort of launches into a conversation. So the title of the book is basically a way of kind of building on that impulse to conversation that happens when people assume that, you know, well, I must be a Buddhist given the work that I'm doing. And then the particular substance of the book is this critique of the Buddhism science dialogue 
as it's being refracted by this, you know, Buddhist exceptionalist idea, and then the argument for a much more expansive cosmopolitan perspective. And so I'm just finishing writing the book now. Uh, Yale University Press is going to publish it. Yeah, and so that's the title. Wow, I'm really looking forward to it. It sounds like it will be a very important book. Thank you. And just leveraging off this concept of cosmopolitanism or being a good citizen or at least a right. citizen of the entire world, given what we see happening in our fragile little world these days, what is giving you hope or what's really exciting and fascinating to you uh, currently? Yeah, that's an interesting question because, you know, there's a lot politically, of course, that troubles me. I'm outside the United States, so the immediate context of the political reality of the United States with Donald Trump as president, I observe a little bit from the side, but I'm a dual citizen. I'm both American and Canadian, and I work in both contexts, and so it, it does affect you know my thinking a lot. And I do find it very, very troubling. And on the positive side, though, here's what I like to think, and I hope this is true. I like to think that a lot of the political conservatism is not even the right word. I'm not even sure what exactly the right word is, but a lot of the political difficulties are actually symptoms of a transformation where, you know, things are really in the form of the next generation going to be much more positive. You know, I see a great and increasing sensibility towards environmental issues, towards, you know, issues of equality. I certainly see this in the university context in which I'm working. So I like to think that, you know, those are hopeful signs and that a lot of this is kind of symptoms of the difficulties of dealing with transformations that are always hard. So that's in my positive moments. This is actually difficult because I was going to say I try to take a more long view, but of course the long view given, you know, environmental crises is maybe not so easy as it might be. But I like to, you know, take a long view and think that we're really in a kind of unprecedented historical situation and that we have an advanced science. We have a knowledge of you know the world's traditions that really has never been available to us we have the opportunities for conversations and dialogues across these traditions that are richly informed by science that we've never really had the opportunity for in human history and so i think that this really creates profound opportunities to understand the mind and to do so in a way that can affect, you know, positive social transformation. That's something that I think would take, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. I think it would take multiple generations. So if we can somehow course correct with the environmental challenges that are facing us in a way to, you know, foster and promote this other, in a way, unprecedented historical project, you know, then I think we have a chance and that would be the positive spin. But, you know, it's precarious, right? We're in a very difficult place right now on the planet. And it's hard to call, I think, how that's going to play itself out. Just to open the can of worms on a gigantic topic, <laughs> yeah. uh, what do you think about the current interest in either, quote, consciousness hacking type technology and or the resurgence of interest in psychedelics as right. a way of helping to catalyze change in human beings? Right. You know, I think they're both double-sided. So the psychedelics, I think, the problem there is that because our culture has been so unbalanced in its relationship to things like psychedelics, both in terms of, you know, government medical policies and in the way that, you know, people use them as 
well, in the way that we were talking about lucid dreaming before, as kind of recreational tools for individual joyrides. Because we haven't had a culture where those things have been naturally part of the culture, where they're used in responsible ways, when we bring them in and take a new interest in them, as is you know starting to happen now, it's really difficult to find the right balance. So I think that you know they can be used very positively in a variety of contexts, both for certain kinds of you know medical treatments and for expanding people's sensibility. Say in cases of you know terminal illness or facing death, there's work on that that certainly indicates the positive benefits. But the problem with it is that it's embedded in a culture that's fundamentally imbalanced, and so. I don't think by themselves they can change the culture. I think they get incorporated into a culture that is, you know, excessively focused on the individual, you know, as an isolated unit in a society where there's no public health care, everything is privatized through capitalist models. So if you put it into a culture like that, the danger is the culture is just going to swallow it up into that. So that's to say there are positive and negative things around it. The consciousness hacking thing that I'm less enthusiastic about. Well, I mean, it depends exactly specifically what we're talking about, but there's a line of approach, you know, that sometimes goes under the heading of the transhuman or the transhumanist that I think is really antithetical towards an appreciation of embodiment. It's a kind of escape strategy where we want to sort of hack consciousness and upload it into, you know, some whatever substrate we yeah. exactly and so i think that's i mean to be really blunt about it i think that all has to do with the fear of death and i think you know our culture turns away from death in every conceivable way and that's just another form of it yeah certainly there's a point to be made that uploading one's brain into some you know diamond substrate computer or whatever has a name already and it's called being dead <laughs> right yeah i mean one i think that's based on you know bad science i think the science of the mind is not a science that really supports the idea of a pure disembodied intelligence in a computational form. I think that's kind of science fiction. And it's actually religious, in a way, science fiction. It's all about escaping death and attaining a kind of purity that's not corrupted by flesh and the body. So that form of Bay Area fear of death, <laughs> I think, is a symptom, not a positive sign. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you've been extremely generous with your time today, Evan, and I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun to talk, and uh, thanks for inviting me to have the conversation. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that 
at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening.